Good morning. I'm very grateful to the session of Redeemer Church to uh, invite me this morning. It's been a number of years since I've uh, been here. You were in the smaller building next door at that time. So it's good to see uh, the Lord prospering you. I forgot to ask when we quit, but I assume um, you start at 10.30 so we can go to noon or something like that. I'm not sure. But uh, after 50 years in the classroom, it, the bell rings. You talk 50 minutes, the bell rings. And, so, but, but we're not in the classroom, so I'll try to do better. I'm going to invite you to go with me to the Gospel of Zechariah. Uh, if you don't know where Zechariah is, just go to Matthew and back up two books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, we refer to them as the post-exilic prophets. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah were uh, co-pastors, really. Uh, Haggai began his preaching ministry two months before Zechariah, and they were preaching to the same congregation and they were preaching to approximately 50,000 Jews who have recently returned from 70 years in Babylon. Uh, and so they are newly, or most of them, were either born in Babylon or were very small children, very young children, when they left Jerusalem 70 years ago. Um, and so uh, this congregation is, is really new, and they have come home to um, a city that is in rubble at the very best. Let's give heed to the reading. I'm just going to read the first six verses of the first chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah. Give heed to the reading of God's Word. In the eighth month... In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, El Shaddai, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers... Where are they now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, they did not overtake your fathers. Did they not overtake your fathers? So they repeat, repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us, for our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have read Holy Scripture. In the eyes of the world, it is a piece of ancient writing that could hardly be applicable to 21st century Americans. And yet, by your grace, we have come to understand that all Scripture 
is the very breath of God, and it remains infallible and errant. It remains useful for instruction in the way of righteousness. It remains useful to bring us a fuller and deeper understanding of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. And so we submit to this ancient piece of Scripture this morning. We pray that we might see afresh the good news of the gospel of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 80 years next June uh, will be the celebration of D-Day, the successful Allied invasion of Europe and in the beginning of the end of World War II. What we don't tend to think about, we, we certainly think of the gracious and benevolence uh, behavior of our own country in, in restoring our former enemy under the Marshall Plan. Uh, what we don't tend to think a lot about because we were not directly affected by the ravages of war on our shores, uh, but Europe was truly just a wasteland of bombed out city after bombed out city. And you need to have that thought in your mind as we begin the book of Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah returned with these 50,000 refugees to begin to restore their homeland and to rebuild their beloved city of Jerusalem and certainly the temple therein. They have been in Babylon from 606 B.C. to 536 B.C., those 70 years. Now, the temple itself in Jerusalem itself was not raised to the ground until 586, so it's just been 50 years since Jerusalem itself was reduced to rubble. In 536, Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, uh, announced that the Jews could go home. Not only could they go home, but he would pay the bill. 200 years prior to that, the prophet Isaiah announced that there would be an emperor and even named him by name, Cyrus. We read in Isaiah 44 and verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed one, he shall build my city and see my exiles free. Those who hold a very low view of Scripture argue that there must have been two Isaiahs. The Isaiah that wrote these latter chapters obviously wrote after the events of the return because how could someone know 200 years in advance the name of the emperor that would set the Jew? Well, for those of us who have a high view of Scripture, 
who believe in a God of miracles, it is no difficulty whatsoever to know that our God would not only know the emperor's name, but would guide and direct the emperor's heart, even as he guides the flow of a stream. And so, under the able leadership of Governor Zerubbabel and High Priest Joshua, Governor Zerubbabel was actually a blood descendant of King David. Joshua, not to be confused with the Joshua that marched around the walls of Jericho, Joshua is a name used repeatedly in the Old Testament, many Joshuas. And this particular Joshua uh, is a descendant of Aaron. He's in the Levitical priesthood. And so you have the civilian leader, Governor Zerubbabel, a descendant of King David, and you have the clerical leader, High Priest Joshua. And then they are supplemented by the ministries of these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, the Jews returned in 536. Uh, I'm sure there was an air of anticipation, excitement. We're going home. And Cyrus is going to give us the money necessary to reestablish our homeland, our city, and even our temple. But during the 50 to 70 years that the Jews have been absent, what you and I might call carpetbaggers have moved in, um, the Samaritans. And they were not at all excited to see the Jews come home and to disrupt their use of the land. And so if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you come across folks like uh, Tobiah and Sanballat, uh, who were leaders of the Gentile peoples who were living in the Promised Land, and, and they made life difficult. They mocked and they ridiculed and they threatened physical violence if the Jews tried to rebuild their homeland. And, and so there's a 15-year gap when nothing gets done. The Jews build their own homes and, and plow their own fields, but they lose heart and, and they give up rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And it's at that point that God raises up Haggai and then two months later, um, Zechariah, to be prophets of encouragement uh, to these, uh, I'm sure, disillusioned and discouraged folks. Now, it's rare that we get a biographical sketch of the prophets. There's only a few but Haggai gives us three, or Zechariah, I'm sorry, we are given three generations, and we ought to stop and take note of that. Verse 1 says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, whose daddy was Berechiah, and whose grandpa was Iddo. Who cares? Well, you should. It's there, and it's part of Holy Scripture, and really... If you don't leave with anything else today, you'll leave with an understanding of the theme of the entire book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the longest of the 12 minor prophets. And in these three names, you will have the key to understanding the entire book. Zechariah's name means Jehovah remembers. 
Jehovah remembers. Now, 99% of the time in the Old Testament, the verb remember is an action verb. God remembered that Noah was in the ark and he sent a strong wind. When God remembers, look in the next line for an action verb. Hannah prayed desperately that God would open her womb and give her a son. And the next verse says, and God remembered his handmaiden, Hannah, and enabled her to conceive. When God remembers, he does something. When the thief on the cross, the repentant, believing thief, asked that Jesus would remember him when he comes into his kingdom, then Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. When God remembers, God acts. Zachariah's name means Jehovah remembers. Jehovah takes action. His daddy, Barakiah, Barakiah's name means Jehovah blesses. And Zachariah's grandpa, Ido, Ido means in his good time. And you put those three names together, and what do you get? Jehovah takes action to bless in his good time. And that's the theme of the book of Zechariah. After 70 years in the spiritual woodshed, and rightly deserved, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who will not forsake his own, he will discipline, but he will not forsake. After 70 years of discipline... God is inviting his people to return and to receive his blessing, to be restored. Jehovah remembers to bless in his time. Zechariah was like Jeremiah and like Ezekiel. Zechariah was also of the priestly line of Aaron. So he was a prophet by appointment, a priest by birth. Zechariah is a book of apocalyptic literature. Teaching the Bible for 50 years, I often had freshmen and sophomores, let's study Revelation, let's study Revelation. And my answer would be, well, have you studied Ezekiel and Zechariah yet? No. Well, then... You can't take calculus if you haven't had Algebra 1. And you ought not to be in Revelation if you haven't done Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. Those are the primers for the book of Revelation. And so there's much, especially in the latter half of Zechariah, that's, that's written in poetic language and um, visions and dreams and apocalyptic terminology, uh, which makes Revelation so much easier to understand. Uh, Zechariah was a, a very young man. He calls himself young in, in chapter 2. Um, he was obviously born in Babylon. He'd never set foot in Jerusalem until Governor Zerubbabel led the way back. Uh, so he's, he's probably a man in his 20s when God calls him to be a prophet. His death uh, is recorded in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 23. 
we know nothing of Zechariah's life based on his prophecy, and we wouldn't know anything about his death except Jesus' comments. In his exchange with the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, verses 34 and following, Therefore, Jesus speaking, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come, uh, so that you uh, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, I can't take you to a historical book in the Old Testament that will give us the narrative of the martyrdom of Zechariah. It's not included in his book. It's not mentioned in Ezra or Nehemiah. But Zechariah, Abel was the first martyr in the Old Testament, and Zechariah apparently was the last, the bookends of the martyrs of the Old Testament. And so we, we do not know if he was married, if he had children, uh, anything other than that, but that his ministry was not appreciated, apparently, by those uh, to whom he preached, and he was put to death. Well, uh, verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. In the Hebrew, that's a superlative Uh, You could read it, the Lord was displeased with displeasure, exclamation point, bold type, italicized and underlined. God was very angry with your previous generations, those who went into exile. Back in Exodus 23, we won't take time to go there, but in Exodus 23, the children of Israel are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. God has just delivered them from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And God comes to his people, and in Exodus 23, 13 times, God uses the verb, I will. 13 times in Exodus 23, God proposes to be Israel's faithful husband. And he says, I will do this, and I will do that, and I will do this, and I will do that. I will be your protector provider. I will take you to be my special people of all the peoples of the earth. Well, what was Israel's responsibility? What did? Because in Exodus 24, then, then you have a marriage ceremony overseen by Pastor Moses. You have 12 stone pillars erected there at the base of Mount Sinai, a stone pillar for each of the tribes. And Moses reads the marriage proposal, the 13 I wills. This is what Jehovah is going on record, the God who cannot lie. This is what he's willing to commit himself to. He will be your protector and your covenant-keeping provider. And Israel said, well, what do we have to do? Nothing. 
except to put away all other gods and cleave only unto Jehovah as long as you should. Just faithfulness, fidelity, that's all he's looking for. You don't have to bring anything to the table. Israel said they would do that. And so Moses oversees the the ritual, the ceremony, and he reads the book of the covenant to the bride. And all Israel says, in effect, I do. We will take Jehovah to be our lawful husband. Then you remember what Moses did. He had sacrificed 12 bulls as part of this wedding ceremony. And then Moses takes a bowl of that blood and he dips his hand in it and he sprinkles the bride. I don't think that would go over well in a modern wedding. I think the mother of the bride would be a bit distressed. But see, the children of Israel needed scratch and sniff illustrations, if you will. They might think, well, Jehovah picked us to be his bride because we're a lot better than those Egyptians. We might be small, but we're mighty. Didn't God get a good catch with us? I don't think so. And so when they went home that day, little Levi's asking Daddy, why did that old white-haired man put blood on us, Daddy? Ah. Uh-huh. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of the Lamb. We're not worthy to be Jehovah's bride. He didn't pick us because we scored best on the good works. No, no, no. We are his bride by grace. Bought and paid for by the bridegroom. Well, over the years, you know the history well. Israel was not a faithful wife. She went a whoring after other gods, too numerous to name. And eventually, God did what he threatened in Deuteronomy. He sent them into captivity. And so it is that Zechariah mentions in verse 2, God was very, very angry with your forefathers. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, El Shaddai. Zechariah uses that term 52 times in 14 chapters. It's his favorite way of referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal covenantal name. El Shaddai is a military title. Lord of hosts, El Shaddai. It's used by Hannah in her prayer in in 1 Samuel 11. When she goes to the tabernacle pleading for a child, she says, El Shaddai, Lord of hosts, grant to me a child. And so you see, even in these first six verses, Lord of hosts is used four times and will continue to be used throughout the rest of the book. 
Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares El Shaddai, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The door of restoration has been opened. You violated the covenant. You were sent into exile accordingly. But according to Hebrews 11, discipline is not pleasant at the moment, but in the end it brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And those 70 years in Babylon had brought softness of heart, at least in this small group who have returned. But what is the definition of, or how does one return? Our catechism chapter, um, shorter catechism, question 87, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Justification and adoption are defined in our catechism as acts. Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all of our sins and accepts us in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. Justification is an event. You're justified once. You're adopted once. Adoption is an act. But question 35 is, what is sanctification? And the Westminster Divines changes the word. Sanctification is not an act. It's not an event. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the inner man and enabled more and more into dying to sin and living. Sanctification is a process. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and go to work. And Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning. Your job is not an act that you do once and it's over. It's repetitive. Repentance is repetitive. It's a part of sanctification. It's why we took time earlier in the service this morning to have a time of quiet, personal confession of sin. You might think, well, I did that when I became a Christian. Do I have to do it? Oh, yeah. Over and over and over and over. Repentance is a saving grace wherein a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, turning from and turning to is a constant, repetitive exercise of God's saving grace. Returning to God, or, well, let me use this illustration. A few of you who have as much white hair as I do will remember the famous movie of the early 70s, Love Story. Um, Ryan O'Neill, Ally McGraw, 
the most famous line in the movie, love means never having to say you're sorry. That's a crock. If you've been married a week or more, you know that's not true. For your marriage to survive and to prosper, it means saying you're sorry over and over and over and over. Repentance is not something you do once initially when you're born again, but it is a saving grace that continues to operate, and it's what Zechariah is inviting his congregation. The Lord's ready. The Lord's willing. If you'll return to him, he'll return to you. Verse 4, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways. They didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. And where are they now? And where are the prophets? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Daniel, who was taken in the first group of refugees, cream of the crop. Uh, Ezekiel was taken on a later trip. Daniel was the, the city prophet. Ezekiel lived out in the refugee camps um, by the rivers of Babylon. Daniel was a very, very old man, but he lived to see Cyrus issue the decree to send the Jews home. Daniel had to have been in his 80s or 90s. But in Daniel 9, we don't have time to go there. Daniel gives a great intercessory prayer that God would remember his covenant. And that he had promised at the end of 70 years, he would restore his people. And that's the last thing Daniel prayed. And Daniel didn't get to go home. He died in Babylon. But he lived to see the covenant-keeping bridegroom keep his vows. Even if the bride didn't, the bridegroom kept his word to be Israel's faithful husband. Sometimes we become weary. We become discouraged. We become disheartened. These are the temples that God's building today. Know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. My wife and I were privileged to go to Israel a couple months ago and walk in the ruins of the temple. I'm not at all concerned or interested if that temple is ever rebuilt. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is where our eyes ought to be fixed. That's the temple God is building. It's an international temple. It crosses every boundary, geographical and ethnic. 
Paul reminded the Galatians, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs to all the promises that God gave to Abraham. Sometimes your sin, sometimes my sin, can greatly discourage us, not making much progress. But God is faithful. In Jeremiah 3, verses 12 and 13, return, faithless Israel, return, faithless Christian, and we're all faithless. Return, faithless Christian, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord." This is really a, a sermon that would take us right to the Lord's table. Part of what is said in preparation to the Lord's table is that we exhort the congregation, pastor included, to examine ourselves to see if we are worthy. And that was such a troublesome admonition to me for years and years. Because I, as I examined me, I wasn't impressed. And I knew I wasn't worthy. That's not what that means. When Paul invites us in 1 Corinthians to examine ourselves and not to come to the table in an unworthy manner, he's not asking us to go down a checklist and see how many times we read our Bibles and prayed and, and were kind to our spouse since last communion. It's not a checklist of performance. When I'm invited to examine myself, I'm invited to examine, am I trusting in the all-sufficient blood of the Lamb? Is Christ the solid rock upon which I stand? Is He my only hope? Well, if He is, then I'm worthy to come. Because I'm not coming based on my performance, but on his. And so, as Zechariah invites his congregation to return to the Lord, it's applicable to every believer. Return to the Lord. He will not be angry forever, and he delights to give forgiveness. My favorite John Newton quote, he was very old and nearly blind. John Newton wrote, I remember two things. First, I'm a very great sinner. And second, I have a very great Savior. This is our incentive for repentance. However great our sin and backsliding, God is ready and willing and able for us to return to Him in repentance and faith. First John 1, so familiar, 
um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then sometimes those chapter divisions are such a nuisance because John didn't have a chapter division. He just went on and said, my little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if you do sin or when you do sin, remember you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. You have the best defense attorney imaginable. And Jesus, and, and if at some future time I get back, we'll be preaching out of Zechariah 3, the, the, <laughs> the John 3, 16 chapter of the Old Testament. It's just a wonderful chapter. Where Zechariah reminds the people that, yes, you're dressed in filthy clothes. But the Redeemer is going to take those filthy clothes away. is going to dress you in his robes of righteousness. The invitation of the gospel has never changed. Old Testament, New Testament, one consistent message. God loves to save sinners. And in order for those sinners to be saved, they simply need to humble themselves, confess that they are indeed sinners, and fall upon the mercy seat of Christ. That's my invitation to you this morning. If you've not ever done that, please don't leave here. Carrying your sack of sins too heavy. But be sprinkled by the blood of the bridegroom and be cleansed. Father, we're so grateful this morning the consistency of the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You are in the business of reclaiming remaking, redeeming sinners. And that is our hope, that is our trust, that is our confidence, that is our joy. We pray that you would encourage us even this day to reflect anew and bask in what it means to be a child of God. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.